0: Welcome into Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman. Happy to be back with you for another amazing interview. I just got done chatting with Brian Sims. Brian is a state legislator in Pennsylvania, and he is, I think it's fair to call him a rising star in the Democratic Party. Uh, he'll By the end of his next term that he was just reelected to, he'll have spent a decade in the Pennsylvania state legislature, and it would not surprise me if in the future he winds up in national politics. Brian has a fascinating background. Uh, We'll talk about he was an army brat, moved all around the country, uh, was a high school and then ultimately college football player, and a really good one, uh, was the captain of a national championship caliber team uh, at the D2 level. Brian is also a gay man who came out uh, to his teammates in college and then at the start of his law career uh, after college, obviously after he's done playing football, uh, took a leadership initiative and a number of LGBTQ organizations within Philadelphia and within Pennsylvania to continue his work fighting for equality. That's really what his life and career has been about. Uh, the rest of that you need to know is, is in the interview. So I don't want to spend too much time on the intro. Uh, I will just say the reason I wanted to have Brian specifically on and and shout out to someone who has become a co-producer of this podcast, my girlfriend, Rachel, uh, who luckily for me on top of being uh, a fantastic partner knows a lot of really cool people knows of a lot of really cool people. Um, so Rachel, who's from Philadelphia, uh, Turn me on to Brian. And said you should check this guy out. It'd be really cool if you could get him on the podcast. And as I started to look through his stuff, he seemed to really embody and be living the communication strategy that I talked about a lot with Joe on those editions of the podcast in season two. Um, that and what I talked about with Greg Pinello a couple of weeks ago uh, to kick off season three. That. There are ways to be unapologetic and speak truth to power and be forceful with things that are good for people. And if we did that more consistently, then the things that Democrats want to do and the things that those of us that are consider ourselves progressives would like to see change in the world would be more palatable for a mass public that could then actually create change. The momentum would be there. The votes would be there and you could create a more equitable system in the world and brian is someone who was living that so i wanted to talk to him about that talk to him about his story because it's fascinating within its own right and that's what we did so here's my conversation with brian sims here on chasing interesting brian i'd love to start with you just at the very beginning uh you know what were you like as a kid? Like what, what was Brian Sims child like running around? Uh, you obviously had some interest in sports. So what were you, what were you like as, as a kid and and what interested you as a kid?
1: Um, I'm laughing because I think my good friends that uh, at least the friends that I've had since I was m- middle teenager, I'll say, will tell you, I've kind of been the same person my whole life. It's just now it's, I'm finally like sort of either okay with it or it's finally become a little cool. Um, but you know, if you just sat down next to me at, 14 years old on the bus, I would have explained to you why women needed to rule the world. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I've had this this sort of same really um, really aggressive approach to, to justice and righteousness my whole life. I I took my entrance exams to law school when I was 16 years old because I, I've just known my whole life that this is what I wanted to do. So a, as a kid. Um, I, you know, my, my parents are both retired lieutenant colonels in the army, so I grew up all, all over the United States, um, from Kansas to Alaska, and like most army kids, you know, I was the new kid a lot. And I have a twin brother, and that helped a lot, it meant that there was somebody my age, you know, in my grade as I was moving, we're not identical twins, and so we didn't have to kind of deal, deal with any of that baggage, we just got to be two people the, the same age. And, you know, for me, by contrast, I can look back now and think, wow, my brother was so normal and so well adjusted. <laughs> and, you know, I was that kid that would, you know, read the, the rule book at our new schools. So I, could, I knew exactly how much up to the line I could walk, but also so that I knew to say, hey, you're, you can't do that or that's wrong or like knock that off when I saw people being t- treated unfairly. I, you know thankfully my parents i think saw it really early on I, rem- I remember as a kid getting in trouble a few times either for sticking up for somebody or not letting something happen and I, I remember my parents very proactively you know choosing not to not to punish me or or having to you know having to come to school to get me but understanding that it was okay cuz i you know i stopped somebody from getting beat up mm. and so it, that was kind of that was my childhood the sports thing Uh, you know, came from having a a twin brother and an older brother that are, are, are definitely athletes. I think they'll tell you I'm a jock and they're athletes. And, uh, you know, was, was in many ways, something that I have, I have used throughout the years or or did as a kid, both to, to meet new people, to meet friends and to kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I can be a pretty aggressive, high, strung person if you can't tell. And sports was pretty useful in, in dealing with that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'd love to double back to, um, the, the moving around a little bit, because that's something that I think in my life I've benefited from is like I grew up in the same place from the time I was four to the time I graduated high school. I grew up in, in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, but my parents are from New York. And after I went to school for two years in Tennessee, two years at Syracuse, I moved to Kansas, Texas, and now I'm in DC. So I've been around, like, you know, in experience, not just different, you know, cities in the same region, but different regions of the country. And I think that's really helped have a more global worldview um, of, you know, I say global, even though it's all domestic. But, you know, we we have a lot of different types of people here in this this big country of ours. Uh, so how did growing up and moving around and experiencing culture in different places shape the way you see the world?
1: You know, probably in a lot of the ways that that you just referenced. And the the truth of the matter is the social science backs it up. You know, most people who've traveled a lot as kids, whether they are military brats or they had, um, you know, factory parents that were always, you know, they, were, they followed to jobs, will tell you that among the things that, you know, the, what, that the experience of, of being that kind of moving kid all the time gained for them was an ability to kind of get along in most rooms. I joke that I can make friends at a pencil makers conference or a nuclear physicist convention in part because of that, that background, but the data bears it out as well. It turns out that the two leading indicators, for example, of how a person in the United States will view civil rights are formal education and travel. And that travel thing is so important. You, you said it, we have, there's so many different types of people in this country, but when you travel a lot, you really figure out how similar we all are. You might call soda and coke and cola and pop something different. You might have a, you know, you you might obviously have different sports teams that you care about and you care vehemently. But the truth is, you know, whether it's the holidays that we celebrate or the things that we find nostalgic or the days that we enjoy and the days that we don't, we all tend to have a lot in common. And when you travel a lot, you not only figure out how much we have in common, you sort of get over this idea of your own exceptionalism. Um, it's really easy when you've never gone anywhere to think of everybody as a them and in you and yours as an us when you travel you just realize that those boundaries aren't particularly real those things aren't, aren't true and you meet exceptional people all over the place and so that this false idea of again your own exceptionalism own being your community or your your actual own kind of kind of falls away it's a, it's a for me it was a massively beneficial thing as a child but you know I've been to all 50 states now and and I I I have love, I still continue to love how unique everybody is, but also we're all very much the same.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think sports can also break down barriers in that way too. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, obviously as a sports person myself, like, and specific to your sexuality, how did that dynamic play out, um, in high school and, and then ultimately in college, because I, I think as someone who's covered pro sports, like I'm fairly confident I've covered a gay athlete. I just don't know it because no one has ever come out as gay while active, or at least until a couple of years ago. You had, you know, Jason Collins at the very end of his career, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the idea that you, you just don't know who's in the room. Um, and then obviously, uh, for those that, that don't know your background, you come out in college, uh, I believe if I have the, the timeline, right, like right after you guys win a championship, um, we lost it, lo- it lost right a championship. championship. Okay. Yeah, I was
1: just reported that I played in it, but now we, yeah. lost, we so, lost it. So how did that
0: dynamic play out in terms of, you know, just like the travel, but you know, that similarity that you find, um, because people, especially, especially athletes and especially male athletes can have a certain idea of what someone i put in in air quotes here someone is like a gay person or whatever um someone from a different part of the world is like so specific to you and your story how did that dynamic play out
1: well i'll tell you one thing craig is that i I actually have learned both in my own experience and certainly subsequently in the work that i do in this field specifically that those stereotypes about athletes are are just not true it's the same with the military when um when don't ask don't tell fell a, 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 a super majority of the of members of the military um, believed in it being eradicated. In part because the military, a lot like sports, is a place where you actually have an opportunity to, to judge if you're going to people based on their performance. Right. There's not a whole lot of whole, there, there, are like, there just aren't a lot of places in this world where if you're going to if you're going to evaluate a person that you can evaluate them something on that that is as uh, objective as their performance. Right. And so, you know, I found among my my buddies, my best friends, that they had long since made up their minds about the quality of my character based on all of the interactions that we had had. Now, I got I got lucky in a particular regard. So I went to Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania. It's a Division two school up in the Poconos. Uh, Pennsylvania has a lot of these Division two football schools, kind of like Texas, kind of like California. And um, you know, it's a state school, I had a twin brother that went to another state school. And you know, my teammates, maybe to get back to your first question about what I was like as a kid, you know, by the time I got to college, I knew my, I'd known for years that I wanted to do civil rights work. It, mm-hmm. Most of it was women's and reproductive rights work. But you know, I, I talked daily with the people around me about the things that I wanted to do, the kind of person I was, who, you know, who they were gonna be too. And so when it came time for me to come out and frankly, my teammates sort of came out to me, I didn't come out to them, they, they came out to me. Um, you know, they were doing it to make sure that I was you know, comforted and felt protected and, and felt that they, you know, that they were sort of surrounding me to make sure that I was going to be okay. And that was a really cool thing. You know, I was a senior in college. We had just lost a national championship, but you know, I was the captain of the football team and these guys had known me for four years. I was the, the longest starter on our, on our defense um, I was a, uh, you know, regional All-American football player, but I also was the same person that I am right now. You know, I, mm-hmm. I believe deeply in combating racism. And, you know, if you don't think racism exists on a division two college football team, yep. you know, you don't know what it is. There's so many people on my team were first generation to go to college. So many of them were, you know, the best athletes in these little tiny towns. And that this was their chance to get out and to go to college. And You know there was the sexism that I saw every day. You know my college was actually really well known and continues to be for having some amazing women's sports. Some of the best girl jocks in the country were coming out of my college for years and years. And you know you'd get these these guys that had been high school football you know bigwigs that now have to wait at the trainer's room you know until the stim machine isn't being used by one of the women on the you know on the basketball team. And that was a, a really great, not only awakening for them, but an opportunity for me to talk about my, my values and the things that we cared about. So when I came out, you know, they, there were a lot of questions. There were a lot of tears, um, not, not necessarily mine. My teammates were, were really wanted to make sure that I knew that they still cared about me and that they were there for me. And, and you know, in many ways, I think my experience was sort of the prototype for a lot of coming outs that are hap- happening on other sports teams.
0: Yeah. No, and I think that what you said at the beginning there is so important, too, that, that the stereotypes of athletes are definitely not the reality. And I try to tell people this, especially with the NFL, a league I covered for a long time, is um, I find that league to be one of the most interesting and have players who are some of the most intelligent people that I've ever met. Um, and part of that is like they they all went to college for at least three years, which I think helps. Um, you get exposed. So, you know, you have kids that, like you said, were high school hotshot in their their hometown um, and some, you know, from the cornfields of Iowa to New York City. And, you know, they wind up going to college. They're exposed to different types of people in a collegiate setting. And then they get in this locker room. And really, ultimately, what matters uh, on a survival level for you know, 40 of the 53 guys, let's say, you know, there's like 13 studs that that they're, they're set, they've got the contract, they're not going anywhere. But really, the NFL, because of the nature of it has so much turnover, that a locker room becomes a place where you can have a lot of those conversations and people like sports is the vehicle to bring people together that otherwise would absolutely never cross paths. And it sounds like you had a lot of that as well.
1: And just it creates opportunities. You know, I, yeah. I started this by saying that the two leading indicators of how personal view civil rights are formal education and travel that applies to almost every single professional athlete in the United States.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so why did you ultimately so you, you get into your legal career that you had dreamed about? You're doing you know the lawyer thing uh, in, in practice. Why did you decide to then ultimately run for office and, and decide to take your career in that way? Because I was
1: pissed, pissed (laughs) off at my (laughs) lousy government. I mean, that's a quick one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, I'm an openly gay man. Here I am living in a state that doesn't have a single statewide LGBTQ civil right for people like me, my friends, my family, my loved ones. And I was I was really angry about it for a number of years. I used to run Equality Pennsylvania, my state's LGBTQ civil rights organization. I, I ran it on the side while I was practicing law and um, you know, in a state that doesn't have any LGBTQ rights, there's so many fronts to fight on. And I was trying to have a legal career, and you know, tr- I was the the in-house counsel for the Philadelphia Bar Association, and the time and the two just weren't congruent. And so I I quit my real job for a year and essentially pro bono ran this advocacy nonprofit, and. It, a a data point was presented to me that, that made it very clear. And it was that no state that had ever passed any type of LGBTQ relationship laws, for example, had ever done it without first having an out legislator and Mm. Pennsylvania was the second largest state in the country that had never done that. We had never elected anybody openly LGBTQ in the 247 year history of my, my state, our Commonwealth. Wow. And so I, I set out to work to try to do that. And, uh, there was a woman um, in the Philadelphia suburbs that, uh, ran two times in a row, lost both times. It would have been perfect at this job. And, um, I spent a year or so pretty angry afterward. And then my closest group of friends sort of sat me down and said, Hey man, you might be the person you're looking for. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't agree with them at first. I am not a native Philadelphian, which is in and of itself really unusual in this city, uh, especially this city. I, you know, I, I here I was practicing civil rights law, but I, I you know, I wasn't even a native Pennsylvania. And, um, I, I gave it about a year's worth of thought and then went and met with my predecessor. And I said to her, I'm going to run the largest, cleanest, healthiest race in the history of, of the city. And I'm going to beat you because of it. She'd been in office since I was six years old and she wow. told me to go fuck myself. <laughs> I, I actually, I loved it. I, you know, my mom's got a mouth like a truck driver and I was kind of like, ha, ha, you're like, all right, it made me l- like her more, Yeah. but I did. I ran, I ran a 10 month long race. I won my first election by 233 votes Wow! and, and, I'll, and I'll never forget the number. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: Um, yeah. And a, a competitive person telling them to go fuck themselves is always a good way to get them to leave you alone. That's really going to work. Uh, right.
1: Well, you know, this campaigns are are largely run by people who motivate using the fear of loss. Mm-hmm. When a campaign, people are often mercenaries. They get hired on campaigns all around the country. But the one thing that seems to be a constant among them is this idea that you approach your candidate with, with the, the the narrative that they're already losing, they're already behind, and that they have to play catch up every single day, waking up with this this fear that'll motivate them. And you know, about about four months into my first campaign, I sat my campaign manager down, who was and is still a pretty good friend, and I said, "Listen, this just isn't going to work." for me. I don't know if it's because I'm an athlete or because of my army upbringing or whatnot, but I am not motivated by the fear of loss. I am motivated by the things that can happen with wins and with accomplishments. And I get that, but the fear of loss isn't something that's going to keep me, keep me going. I, I, I keep me going.
0: That I, I'm going to want to come back to that. That's fascinating to me because it, that in many ways I'm reading Obama's book right now. And, and I think is a lot of the, the politicians that I like in general and they're ones who focus on what you can actually do as opposed to the idea that like none of this works like and then I just need to keep my job um so that that resonates with me on a large level and and I think politics in general would be a lot healthier obviously if more people thought like that um and the world would be a lot better place if people thought like that of what can we actually do as opposed to like what happens if it goes poorly um Speaking of Obama's book, he talks about how when he got to Springfield as a state senator, like he like you was like, what can we do? I'm going to do this. I got I got all these plans. And he gets there and he's like, oh, shit, this is how this works. What was your biggest surprise when you got to Harrisburg and saw how the sausage is made, if you will?
1: You know what? My biggest surprise didn't come until this year. Hmm. I've not been asked this question before, but as soon as you started asking it, I realized my big I'm I've been in office for eight years. I was just elected to serve in my ninth and tenth year. Um, but in May of this year, my colleagues, um, exposed us to COVID-19 and covered it up and didn't tell any of us, let us all go home for a holiday. Um, we got, we came back to the legislature and we only found out because of a reporter and it took us days to pry that information out of them that they had exposed us all in the days before sending us all home to, to see our families, our loved ones and covered it up. And that was the, by far the biggest surprise of my, uh, frankly, of my, uh, my adulthood. Um, and I don't want to sound too dramatic about it, but I'll tell you why is that, you know, I, I work with some really bad people and I've known that for years. I have a colleague named Daryl Metcalf, who is one of the most homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, sexist, bigoted, racist legislators in all of America and well known for it. Um, You know, I have colleagues that have tried to take health care away from trans kids. I have a colleague, a former colleague that raped another colleague at gunpoint a couple of years ago. That's how bad the people I work with are. And I've known that for years. What I did not know is that despite all the agreements that many of us have as individuals, I truly never believed that the body would allow a mass exposure to the deadliest pandemic in a century and cover it up for political gain. You know, we, every one of us has people we disagree with, people we don't like, family members that we don't get along with, and yet we all find ways to do that. And that's true from you know, boardrooms to, to dining room tables to government. But I, until this year, did not know that the level of disagreement that exists between my colleagues and I would reach to a level where they'd be willing to expose us to something that would kill us and our families and not tell us.
0: How do you compartmentalize and still work with those people? And should you?
1: Do I sound like somebody that's compartmentalized it?
0: No, which is refreshing. (laughs) And that's why I tried to ask the question in a slightly different way. Um,
1: Yeah, I, you know, listen, I now know who I'm dealing with. Mm. And I, I have a much better understanding of how to deal with them. I know where and when to pull my punches better. I know where and when to utilize my resources better because of them. Um, you know, I, I am a, an otherwise very civil person. My, my law degree is in international human rights law. Um, but I, I vehemently push back against anybody who would allow civility to stand in the way of civil rights. And I believe that's what's happened. I think we for a long time, we've been kind of getting punked by the extreme sort of amosexual fundamentalist right about our own need for decorum and civility, while we're questioning how these people could behave so badly. How can they think this and do that? How can they say this and believe this? They're the whole time just counting on us having this, you know, wrestling with these moral conundrums while they're putting kids in cages, selling stock to the tunes of millions and millions of dollars based on information that, you know, that hundreds of thousands of us are going to die and covering up, you know, foreign intervention in our elections. So I, I, you know, I can I believe that we can be both morally right and aggressive and strong and that it doesn't take away from a need for civility to be aggressive.
0: I'll come back to that when we get to the communications conversation in a second. So this is, this is kind of my last question on this, though. Um, and I'll, re, I'll ask the question in a very different way. How do you still get shit done? Because at the end of the yeah. day, like, they still have a vote on legislation you might want to try to pass. And even though they suck, you mu- you still would, in theory, want their vote on your legislation to get the thing done that you want to get done. So even though they suck, how do you work with them anyway? I guess is a better, more accurate way to ask that question.
1: It's even a slightly bigger question because they control the House and Senate in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. We're the, the last great gerrymandered state in the United States.
0: So despite the fact that
1: there are a million more Democrats in this state, Republicans control the House and Senate unconstitutionally. But to your point, I have to work with them. So how do you do it? There's three different ways. One is to work on blah issues, middle of the road issues, work on gravel and bridges and roads. And that stuff has to happen. Now, yep. great, lately, infrastructure seems to be something that the extreme right opposes. But, but by and large, there's lots of things that we have to work on every single day that we can and do work on just because we're required to. The other two ways are either to motivate somebody to work with you because the, the idea is right and morally right, and therefore they should or to scare them into doing it. Um, and I, you know, I use both. Um, I I work on really important real issues. I'm the architect of the Equal Pay Act in my in my state. I wrote the Marriage Equality Act in my state. And you know, those things are not law, even though marriage equality was granted through the or through the Supreme Court. You know, mm. I, I I use all the tools available to me. Now, listen. Last year, my legislature passed, I, I believe, only 2.1 percent of the bills proposed by Democrats. Now. it's a little less insidious and that they actually steal all of our good bills. Um, And so oftentimes you'll, one of my colleagues will introduce a piece of legislation with a co sponsorship memo. Hey, here's why I introduced this bill. Here's why I believe in it. And it'll be such a good idea that a month later, one of my Republican colleagues will circulate the bill and it'll get passed. And you know, they get a pen on their wall or something. It just happened to me recently with a piece of legislation where it was just given to one of my Republican colleagues because they wanted her to have the win. And you know this isn't sports, and I, I I really push back on the idea that politics and sports are are the same in that regard because sports is more win or loss loss. It is more black and white. It is more rah rah. You you know you you the the emotion there. You're you're kind of intended. You're it's it's sort of intended to let you let you know let your emotions run rampant a little bit. Right. But that's not that's not government. Yeah. And so yeah, you know I have to work with people sometimes because the idea is great and I want to. And sometimes people work with me because they're scared not to.
0: Yeah. In sports, the win and the loss is the result, um, as opposed to the other way around in politics. The result is the winner of the loss. If someone else gets their name on the bill, but it's the result you wanted, that's that's ultimately a win. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to the communications conversation. And the reason I really, uh, once I uh, found some of your stuff and, and wanted to talk to you, was because you take a tact that I have long wondered if it would work, which is essentially to relentlessly and vociferously speak the truth uh which seems like a really baseline level way to communicate but um and i and i talked about this uh a couple couple weeks ago with a democratic strategist who's been in dc for a long time worked on presidential campaigns et cetera. Et cetera. and my point to him was basically republicans are unafraid to shout whatever bullshit they are spewing that week from whatever microphone and megaphone and mountain they can find. And Democrats seem to have a longstanding, uh, not really tradition, longstanding thought, longstanding uh, mentality that they have to try to, because we're under this big tent mold and not offend anyone, but make sure they kind of wink, wink, nod, nod at everyone under this gigantic tent. And it's like, why are we so careful with the truth while they have just continually hammered over time things that are not. And I think the long term- They're going to be so careless with lies. Right. And so his argument was, well, you win the election first and then you can worry about making the bigger argument later. And my point was, well, on a congressional cycle that's every two years, that means you're constantly just trying to win the election. And over time, the Republicans have been able to shift the Overton window in a ridiculous way, as opposed to- what Democrats are now boxed in and some of the, the you know constantly on the defensive and making their points with the you know it, within the context of the Republican defined argument. So long preamble uh, to a, what we'll start as a very basic question to you. And when you think about communicating, uh, you know, through your official channels or in any ways, uh, and I'm curious if it changes from when you're speaking to a large group, whether via social media or in a time when you can giving speeches to individual voters, but What do you think about when you think about communication strategy?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. It's Um, a loaded
0: one. So feel free to to start somewhere and we can wind on. It is a a loaded
1: one. So, first things first is that I don't have a communications director. I don't have a communications strategy necessarily. What I have is uh, enough experience to know that Americans don't know what they want out of their elected officials anymore. Um, it's been too much of a roller coaster. It's been too costly. It's been too back and forth. It's been too, too much like sports, right? And we don't know what we want, but, but we, we know what we don't want. And we don't want bullshit. We don't want inauthenticity. We might not know yet how to measure authenticity, but we know how to spot inauthenticity. And so mostly what I think of when I think of comm strategies is make it real, make it authentic. Um, I, 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 to, I've been doing this so long now that I, I can't really give you an example of what I think an, an inauthentic comms strategy or a piece of communication from me would be, um, but I, I think so much of the the sort of BS echo chamber f- fundraising cycle that everybody is in is a, is very indicative of it. Um, I also, you know, listen, I'm not somebody that thinks that every single thing I think needs to be shared or needs to be blasted out there. A lot of the work that I do as a legislator, certainly behind the scenes, because that's the nature of the work. And if I were talking about it all the time or blasting out there, it would, it would completely hamper the work or ha- hamper the relationships, maybe. But I, I do believe that that people need to hear your values. They don't need to hear spin on things. For me, I, I'm, I, I'm real big on, I don't think people necessarily need to hear my thoughts on things all the time. They need to hear why things make me act or why I move as a result of things or what inspires me to act. But I don't think people need to hear my thoughts on things. They need to hear what I'm doing with those thoughts. And uh, that's, that has been really useful for me. I'm by a lot of measures, I'm probably the most followed state legislator in the country. And you know, I had a pretty large size social media footprint when I ran for office to begin with, and you know, it's obviously grown, um, uh, you know, pretty pretty massively while I've been doing this job. And you know, I I hear every single day from people all over the country, and I think a lot of them are just really, um, maybe not excited, maybe pleased, maybe just not pissed off to hear from a legislator that seems to be thinking the things that they think and then doing something that they would. Do If they thought that, you know, people's thoughts on things are, are they're not useless. I, I, I listen to people's thoughts on things every single day. Um, but in this job, people's actions are are the most important component to the whole process.
0: That makes sense. And I think that if more people would do that. Then people would believe the argument. Um, I think of Jason Kander um, in Missouri in his state race in '16. He he wrote about this in his book how he would go knock on someone's door and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, I know who you are." You'd have a conversation with them and he'd be, and, and the person would be like, "I don't believe in anything you believe, but you seem like a good dude, so I'm going to vote for you." And, and yeah. of course, when you talk about people don't know what they want from their legislators, um, it's the same reason that Democratic policies poll significantly higher than Democratic politicians because. If people could connect the dots and those numbers would be the same. Um, that People don't understand what is actually in their best interest. And I think Republicans have done a f- fantastic job. That's half compliment, um, half horrifying that of convincing them that their way or that they actually have their, their best interest in mind when the policies obviously don't match up. And so that's that to me is a huge point. The the authenticity that. Um, and, and why I think someone like you, um, and, and the way you communicate works, why someone like AOC, why Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an ultra progressive. Um, there are other more moderate candidates that like truly, and honestly, Joe Biden's one of them. Like Joe Biden does a good job. I think of authentically saying like, this is what I believe. This is why, this is why I think, and he can explain it well enough that in authentically enough in a way that actually connects with people. And so ultimately like that's the point is to connect with people as a communicator and in a way that makes them believe you. And then what you're saying, um, I want to say it becomes less relevant because obviously ultimately that's going to achieve the result that we talked about, but you're going to have a chance to convince people and, and get a chance to act on whatever it is you think is best or whatever it is that you want to do.
1: I, I, not only do I agree, I'll give you the best example that I can think of at least of recent for me was, you know, during the days and weeks that followed the election in Pennsylvania. And the eyes of the country were on Pennsylvania. And um, like North Carolina, like Georgia, like Arizona, you know, everyone was paying attention to what was going on with us. And it was, you know, it was taking days and ultimately a week to count and certify our results. And every day felt like there was a new attack on the results or a new attack on the number or a new attack on, on the people counting. And, you know, I know that it's in the best interests of, of n- news and journalists um, to, to keep that story going. You know, that's they, 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 the attention that they're trying to get, the, the, the advertisers on their shows that they're trying to appeal to. They need this market. But I, that's not me. I don't need those things. What I need is I needed people to feel comfortable. I knew early on that the numbers that were going to come out of Pennsylvania were going to show a Biden win. I, I called it at a slightly higher number than it came in, but we had a little bit less voters than we thought we would. But by and large, the trauma that people have felt these last four years, you know, there are plenty of people in my communities that, you know, the, the attacks on them aren't esoteric. The attacks on them aren't, you know, on the front page of the paper. They're literally on their, you know, in, the, in their doorways. And so you know, extending the trauma for this, you know, sexy, campaigny news story wasn't important. And so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time during those days and weeks trying to be as, uh, trying to, as calmly as possible, just explain to people that we were okay, that math was going to win the day, that math was going to prevail, and that the counts were there, that the votes were there. And I, I needed to make sure that people understood that. And it's amazing, you know, there are lots of people that, the thing that they like the most about my messaging is that I take it to people that I don't hold back when somebody doesn't, shouldn't you know be held back against. Um, but similarly, there are a lot of people that I think at least appreciate just the no nonsense nature of it, that I, I'm, I'm not going to lie about this or project about that or spin this or keep this thing going just for my own benefit or for the benefit of the, the story itself. That's not, it's not my job. It's not my position. It's not my goal.
0: What I also appreciate is that you don't take for granted people like me who are citizens and observers, and obviously you don't represent me as I don't live in Pennsylvania. But you know, someone like AOC or, or you know, on a, on a national level, um, who does this, you don't take advantage of someone like me who is very passionate and would like someone in power to speak up on these issues and. Often feel like we're taken for granted because like I'm going to show up and vote anyway because I know it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean I don't necessarily want to hear that someone is fighting every once in a while.
1: Yeah, it's one of the problems I think that happens when or at least one of the ways we need to be smarter about how when we talk about expanding our base if we're expanding our base to people who don't believe in the ideas as we've laid them out now either they're bad ideas or we haven't laid them out well enough but after doing those two things if people if we haven't if, if people aren't on board I don't know about what we're supposed to do to try to attack attract another five 10 fifteen percent of voters if these aren't the issues that 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 will attract them now maybe it's there are other issues that I agree with that they just care so much more about those and I hope that's the case but it's not always the case and I don't I don't ever want to give up ground on the major issues of equality, for example, mm-hmm. in order to attract somebody who, you know, maybe thought it was okay to call Mexicans rapists, but it's no longer okay to call vets losers.
0: Yeah, no, that 100%. And that kind of leads to the the final question and and the ultimate conundrum that I've been tussling with as I've thought about these things, uh, you know, from the sidelines and, and one that I'm sure you tussle with from the middle of the fight. Um, and I don't know. Are you familiar with the book uh, Crucial Conversations at all? Not okay. Um, it's a really good book on communication, and the the general uh, the biggest takeaway that I took from it when I read it a couple of years ago um, was that in order to communicate with anybody, they have to feel safe, and that is a fascinating concept within the construct of politics. And uh, this is something Barack Obama talked about in his interview with with Trevor Noah um, that you and I were talking about a little bit before we started recording of like. You know, sometimes these conversations get framed with like, especially around race, like, oh, we have to make the white people feel safe. And it's like, yeah, that's not really a priority here at all. At the same time, if you're trying to convince people and you're trying to win hearts and minds and ultimately votes, you do have to take into consideration the fact that you can't make someone feel threatened because then they're going to automatically put up a wall. And from a communication standpoint that is an ineffective way to try to have a conversation with someone. So how do you try to balance all that? And in what ways can, have you been successful in being unapologetic, being straightforward, being direct, but also not turning people off because they feel threatened by what you're saying or the way that you're saying it?
1: Yeah, I think there's two ways. Uh, one is to do your homework we often conflate the people whose minds we can change with the people whose minds won't change because we just see them on the other side of the table, the other side of the room, the other side of the issue. And, you know, while, while it's easy to look at a group of people who aren't on your side and think they all must agree with each other, that's not often the case. I do a lot of homework so that I can identify the difference between people whose minds can be changed and therefore their actions, people whose minds can be changed but their actions won't change, or people for whom nothing you do is going to change their mind or change their action. You know that's triage but it's a really important triage to do. And so if you're offending and pissing off the people who you'll never whose minds you'll never change, you know maybe you're you're spinning in your your wheels, you know, but what's the point? There can be a point to that if that's it'll impact the other two groups. But more importantly, I think the idea here is to focus on the people whose minds you can change and who will subsequently adjust their actions. And you know one of the things that I know, one of the most insidious things that I know is this thing about privilege. Now, I spent a lot of time teaching people about privilege because I am very much the embodiment of a lot of privilege. I don't come from money and I'm not heterosexual. But beyond that, I have, for the most part, every privilege that a person can ask for in the United States, simply because I I was lucky enough to wake up in this body that I had no control over. Right. And one of the really insidious things about privilege is it turns out that people who have a particular privilege are more likely to challenge somebody else on that issue of privilege than somebody who doesn't. And it's really easy to explain. If you're a sexist, misogynist guy who's already discounting the opinions of women, when a woman talks to you about sexism and misogyny, you're going to discount it. But when a man talks to you, other sexist man, about it, you're more likely to successfully have your views challenged. And so it means that there, you know, while for a lot of people they hear, oh, I'm a bad person because I'm white. Well, that's bullshit. Mostly what we're saying is that you have the opportunity to do some of the most good. It's why it's not enough to just not be racist as a white person, why you have to be anti-racist, because you happen to have this. Whether you should or shouldn't, you happen to have this superpower to address racism. And that superpower is you share the same skin colors the people who are racists. And so use it and do it. Um, men, in the, in, when it comes to you know, sexism and misogyny, our job is to never stand in front of women. But when women are taking attacks from other men, that's the exact opportunity when we can be the most useful, the most fruitful, when our misogyny or our, our, our male identity is the most useful in a misogynist environment. And so I, I, I think those two things are just really critically important to remember. We it's not that we have a you know government's never gonna function without you know without capturing the the impact on white cisgender people, right? And and when government focuses on others, also it doesn't take away anything from us. But oftentimes those people who think it does need to hear from people who look just like you and me that we task you know, people of color with having to combat racism in this country, that we task women with having to combat sexism is just as insidious as those things to, are to begin with. And and it's a calling. It's a challenge to all of us because we happen to have the tools to be among the most effective people at combating those things.
0: Without question. And the last thing I'll add too is the, the precision of language is so in, critical in those situations too, of being direct. And it's something I think that you do a really good job of and, and why I wanted to talk to you was because you will say like, yeah, like, you know, you can take something that is an attack and turn it into like, no, I do believe that. And and when you flip that dynamic and you're precise in the, the way that you talk about it, I think that is a really effective way too, because it takes away the weaponization that the other side is trying to use of what is actually a good idea. And, and I, you know, Medicare for all is a great example for this. Like they believe in socialist medicine. It's like, yeah, I believe everyone should have health care. Like that is a good thing. You know, that I, I've made comparisons on this show before about taxes and, and things like that as well, where if you if you own it, it takes away the weaponization of it. And specific to the issues that you were talking about, um, like, yes, I do believe that women are equal. Wow. What a what a crazy statement. Um, if you take away the weaponization of it, uh, it becomes it becomes a lot easier to defend that point, And it becomes a lot less scary for those who might be a little bit scared of it. True
1: story. Well, listen, Craig, there's also data that says maybe women aren't equal. Maybe they're slightly better at a lot of things than us. The social science tells us that the, the skills that one learns in a lifetime of marginalization turn to turn out to be extremely useful in, in environments like business and environments like government. We call it women's intuition or black girl magic or trans excellence. But the truth is, those are all coded words for a lived life experience that makes you very, 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 um, able to find success in difficult
0: environments. That is fascinating. And, uh, as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to go read more on that because I mean, it's pretty obvious looking around the evidence is there, but I'd love to see uh, more research on that to understand it on a deeper level because it seems very correct. Uh, Brian, this was fascinating, man. This was really great. I I appreciate your time. And uh, at some point post-COVID, if I'm up in Philadelphia, I would love to get together and grab coffee and uh, and talk some more.
1: Absolutely. We'll grab a beer next time I'm down in DC, hopefully.
0: Beautiful. Sounds good. Appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for coming on Chasing Interesting.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much to Brian for coming on the pod. A really... Awesome conversation that I just absolutely thoroughly enjoyed. It was really what I thought would be. He is the real deal. He is who I thought he would be. If you want more from Brian, follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Brian Sims PA. If you found this podcast through Brian and you'd like to get more from me, first of all, please subscribe to this here podcast. Uh, You can do so anywhere you're listening right now, obviously Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, we're everywhere. So wherever it is that you like to listen to your podcast, go ahead and subscribe or follow there. I'm on on Twitter, at Craig Hoffman, on Instagram, at Craig underscore Hoffman. we we'll be back next week with more Chasing Interesting. You can also, if you're a fitness person, check out the Train With The Best podcast and uh, my day job with the Washington Spirit. We do a podcast there called Catch the Spirit, our latest edition of that one with Kelly O'Hara, two-time World Cup champion that we just acquired with the Spirit. So you can check all that stuff out. Uh, hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks again to Brian, and I'll see you next time on Chasing Interesting.